Hey everybody, uh, you may be wondering why you didn't hear the sweet podcast intro music that you're used to hearing, uh, but that's actually because this is not really a Mad Scientist Financial Independence podcast episode. Um, a couple of months ago, a guy named Joshua emailed me to ask if I'd be a guest on his podcast. Um, I agreed and we ended up having a two plus hour conversation about a lot of really interesting financial topics. He then went on to publish the podcast a few weeks later and I linked to it in the Outside the Lab post that I wrote. Um, well, due to some circumstances that Joshua isn't able to disclose, he's had to take down his podcast and his website. Um, since he doesn't know if or when he'll be able to put it back up, he was kind enough to allow me to publish our interview here. Um, the original episode was nearly two hours long, but I decided to edit it down and split it into two parts. So this is the first of those two parts. Um, before I get into the interview, I just want to say thanks again to Joshua, though, um, and I really hope he's able to get his podcast up and running again soon, because it, the episodes that he did have uh, were definitely really enjoyable to listen to. So here it is, the Radical Personal Finance Podcast with me, the Mad Scientist. Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your financial journey. Where'd you start from? How long have you been interested in in, in financial independence, where you're at in your progress uh, towards towards your goals. Kind of just give us a little bit of background so we can understand who you are and where you're coming from. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm 31 years old. Uh, I studied computer science in college and uh, I actually studied abroad in Glasgow, Scotland uh, when I was a junior. Um, and when I was over there, I met a Scottish girl and uh, Came back to the States for my senior year and graduated, and then I moved to Scotland. Um, so we spent about four years living over there, and then I brought her over to the States, and then we just got married last year. So um, after 10 years of being together, we just got married. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah. No, it's been, married life's been good. We just, uh, just had our uh, one-year anniversary there just a little bit ago last month. So, uh, so yeah, things are good with that. And um yeah, as far as when did I start my journey to financial independence, um, I've always been quite frugal um, and I've always loved looking into money and like even as a kid, like I, I couldn't wait till I had a portfolio to manage and um, have money to, you know, do things with and watch it grow and um, so I've never been a big spender, so um but the actual journey itself to financial independence, probably maybe three or four years ago, um, came across uh, Early Retirement Extreme, which is, uh, I just listened to your episode on his book review, which was excellent. Um, so yeah, I came across his blog, and I it was only then that I really thought, whoa, that, that's actually possible. Um, up until that point, like, not spending a lot of money, I, I would take off like six months at a time. In between jobs, I would you know, quit, obviously moving between America and Scotland, that gave perfect opportunities just to, to go do fun things in between those times. So, um, so I always used my money for freedom in that sense, but it was never a focused goal to, okay, I'm going to just work really hard for this time and then I'll have freedom for the rest of my life. It was always like work a bit, have a bit of freedom, work a bit, have a bit of freedom. So it's really interesting how a lot of times, um, there has to be some kind of catalytic event, like reading uh, a story like Jacob's or reading, uh, 
you know, reading something or hearing somebody or talking to somebody because by realizing how quickly it is possible, uh, um, Jacob's story is excellent. He gives a very good um, detailed kind of defense that it is possible and it, you don't have to be some uh, investment wizard to, to accomplish that goal. But by realizing what's possible, I believe that p all of us can look at our specific goals and understand what what's important to us with a much bigger realization of, I guess, the parameters that are possible. Not all of us are going to live pursue Jacob's lifestyle. I'm probably not going to pursue your your approach, but I learn from everyone's approach. So I think that that it's that's one of the goals I have for this podcast is to help people be exposed to stories and and uh, conversations with people who are doing it and seeing how they're doing it so that we can start with our own goals and say what do we want and, and really feel confident about setting those plans so it's neat that 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 you came that that was a a, a transformative event in in your life uh, as far as his writings I'm sure that would make him feel good oh absolutely it it, it completely changed everything um it was and yeah, as you said, like I, I definitely don't plan on living this style of life that Jacob does, but uh, I've, you know, he's shown me what's possible as far as you know, just making choices that make you happy, and rather rather than just doing what everybody else seems to be doing. So, um, so yeah, I, I could have, I'm sure I could have continued doing what I was doing, and and so far as you know, just working a few years and then going off and having a great time for a little while, and then working a few more, but. Um, I definitely like the new plan of just working really hard and then having the rest of my life to do as I wish. So, so talk, walk us through, and this is going to be a little bit personal, but since you wrote it and published it in uh, in public, I, mean, I don't feel bad about asking you through it. Um, you sat down at some point over the last couple of years and really spent some time trying to envision and create your your perfect life, as you put it. Um, walk us through kind of what that looks like for you, and I'm sure it'll change, so don't feel like you're lumped into a corner here, but walk us through the process of how you sat down first and, and, and started working on it, and then kind of what you think of with you and your wife, what, what, what feels like and looks like the perfect life for you guys. Sure, yeah, no, this, this was a really, really good exercise, and I definitely encourage anyone to do it, and it's actually a lot harder than it sounds, like you, you think you... You think you know what you want, but when you really sit down and try to picture, you know, three months of something that's the same and doing the same thing, you know, it's like the, the stuff you thought you wanted to be doing may not actually be the stuff you actually want to be doing. So uh, it was definitely a really cool exercise. And yeah, it, it sort of sort of came from, it, it was just a natural progression, I think. Once I knew that, okay, freedom freedom's the number one thing. That's, that's what I'm working towards. Um, you know, just saving up the money and then I'll have the freedom to do whatever I want. But then it's like, all right, well, what do, what do I actually want to do? And and if, if work factors into that, then why not account for that and start my perfect life sooner? And you know what I mean? So rather than think, all right, I just got to save up X amount of dollars so that I can spend Y amount every year. Well, if I'm going to be, you know, working part-time doing something that I enjoy, I should probably try to factor that money in. So so yeah, for a good few months, we uh, we just kept talking, uh, my wife and I, just you know talking about different sorts of plans and what's really important to us. So, um, so yeah, to sum up where we are right now, um, we realized that you know like the things that make us happiest are being around people that we love and doing and trying new things that are challenging. So. Um, 
since her family's in Scotland, my family's in America, we're never going to be able to live somewhere where both of us are completely happy <laughs> as far as being able to see it, all the people that we want to see. So, so we just, we thought, all right, well, let's, let's think about this. Um, we can spend, you know, a few months here and there if we need to, uh, we're, we're going to have the flexibility to do that. So, so yeah, we, we came up with what we call the three, six, three plan, which, uh, means that we're going to spend three months, uh, in America, just traveling around, seeing my friends and family and, uh, staying with them and spending some good quality time with them. Uh, we're going to go spend six months in Scotland, um, to see my wife's family and our friends over there. And, uh, my wife will then work during that six months, which I'll come back to and talk about. Um, and then we'll spend three months somewhere else in the world. Um, you know, we'll establish a base somewhere in a region that we want to explore. Um, and then we'll, you know, try to live like locals as much as we can and, you know, just do little side trips outside of there and maybe try to learn some languages and uh, pick up new skills as when we're abroad. Um, so, so that's where we're, that's where we stand right now. And that's, uh, we're actually planning for that first year of the 363 plan. So, um, but yeah, let me, I'll come back to, uh, my wife working. Um, I, I write about this in a couple posts actually. Um, but the entire 10 plus years we've been together, we've had separate finances. Um, I've, obviously been pretty extreme in my savings rate, um, ever since we met and, it, uh, my wife hadn't been that extreme. Um, she's, she was, a quite a normal person before, uh, all these ideas started rubbing off on her, but, um, she, uh, so it always just worked best for us to have separate finances. Uh, cause then that way we're, we're both contributing equal amounts to the bills, but then I can go off and spe uh, save the rest of mine and she could, you know, spend it or save it or whatever she wanted to do with it. So, so she's actually not going to be financially independent, which is why we are going to be living in Scotland for six months so she can work and see her family. Um, and she enjoys her work a lot more than I think I do. So she's not too sad about it. I'm not too sad about it because I love spending time in Scotland. And what type of field is, of work is, is she in? She's an optometrist, so okay. she'll be able to easily pick up. Uh, it's they're they're called locums in Scotland, which is I guess just like you know, if uh, if a practice needs an extra optometrist for a week or a day or a weekend or something, they can just call these people that don't have um, you know permanent jobs somewhere, and they can just come in and uh, sub in for a week or whatever. So. So that works out quite well. Yeah, that's really neat. And, and I'll, I'm going to riff off of that for a second because mm -hmm. did is she currently working a full time practice where like it's her practice, or is she's currently doing some sort of occasional uh, employment? She's working full time. It's not her practice, but she's working as an optometrist at uh, someone else's practice. But yeah, she's full time, um, and she will be uh, until we make our move abroad uh, at the end of next year. So, Okay. So you, in, you mentioned uh, for both you and for her in, in your article, you've mentioned that you are, uh, you're working towards being able to live off of your investment income, but you're also interested in building up sources of income that can allow you to not depend on your investment income so much. And I think, and also even in just what you said about, uh, about your wife's um, potential uh, income in the future of doing it part-time, it's such a valuable strategy. 
is that there are many ways, I think, there are many ways to financial independence. One way, uh, which is maybe kind of the, the ultimate, is to be in, a, you know, be in a position where the income off of your investments will flow in and support your living expenses. That's awesome. Um, for young people, it's perhaps a little bit daunting. You can also set up a, a lifestyle that's a part-time or seasonal employment. So if this is, like you said, of six months a year working at a, something like that, if you develop the skills, you know, I've seen, uh, I mean, what comes to mind right now is accountants um, who mm -hmm. work during tax season and take uh, and arrange their living expenses that they don't need to work year-round. Uh, I think you're in, you know, software developers, people who can work anywhere, writers. There are so many careers that can be done on a seasonal basis if people seek that out. That's such an important strategy for people to understand what their skills are. And then um, it may be that the right move is to move into a corporate 50-week-a-year position or maybe the right move to take those skills and build something up uh, that's able to be done part-time. Absolutely. And, and um, part-time is actually something I'm going to be investigating. I think the more and more I think about it, the more and more it makes sense to maybe transition into financial independence that way. Because um, I know I, there's probably a lot of, you know, it's probably a big change, obviously, and there, there's probably a lot of weird emotions that go along with it. It's mostly exciting, but I'm sure it's going to be a little scary as well. Um, and the, the idea of working part-time really appeals to me, um, one, for tax purposes, just to you know, maybe rather than just work a full year as your last year before financial independence, maybe just work two half years, um, save a bunch of money on taxes, and then, you know, slowly work your way into a new lifestyle. That's not a, a big change, a, a drastic change from what you're doing. But, um, but yeah, I completely agree. And, and especially in the internet age, there's so many more opportunities um, to, to do pick up part time work or, you know, uh, even just work 20 hours a week doing something or whatever, take half the year off. Uh, there's many, many options, which is very, very nice in this day and age. Um, now, you were talking about your wife, and you said that she's not a scientist, but <laughs> you've also said that, that maybe she's changing a little bit. What are you finding as you guys spend more time together? Are you finding that, that she's becoming attracted to your lifestyle more and more, or, or is, she, is she changing to that as... What are you finding is kind of the path there? Oh, absolutely. It's it's actually a very big surprise. Um, I, I have a post on my site uh, called an unexpected guest post, and um, you know, I was just up one night. I was writing a, writing an article, uh, and my wife said she was going to bed, so she just you know kissed me goodnight, and she's like, "There's something on my computer that I want you to read." Um, and I was like, oh, okay, what is it? And she's like, just read it. So she went up to bed, and you know, I tried to finish the article that I was writing, but I, you know, curiosity quickly got the better of me because I was like, what could this possibly be? Um, so I read, and it, and it was just this, this this letter to me that was like just talking about her feelings, and I think she she said she got up in the middle of the night one night because she had so much on her mind, and she just started writing this, and I was sleeping, so she just. Uh, type this out on her computer and and yeah it was it was it was like I got to watch the light bulb go off in her head as far as you know why I'm doing this because we've been like I said we've been together for 10 plus years and for that entire time I've I've been the same like you know just you know watching my money very closely um, not buying a lot of stuff uh, you know trying to save as much as possible and she like I said she wasn't 
she wasn't like that. So she didn't really understand it. Um, and we always had separate finances. So I never, you know, tried to force her to do anything that she didn't want to do. So, so we never really talked about it, but, um, you know, ever since I started writing on the mad scientist, um, she's my editor. So she gets to read all my articles before I post them just to try to snag any, uh, misspellings or anything like that. But, uh, so yeah, I guess it started to sink in and, and doing the podcast and interviewing other people that had, you know, pursued financial independence. Um, you know, she got to hear from other people besides me saying, this is why I'm doing it as well. And, um, we also got to meet up, uh, Jim Collins from JL Collins uh, interviewed him for the podcast and he actually lives quite close. So we, you know, we met up with him and his wife and had some good dinner conversations about this stuff. And, um, so yeah, I think it just started to gradually click like, Oh, he, you know, he's not just doing it cause he's a cheapskate. He's doing it cause he wants to, you know, let his money grow and then use, you know, use the interest off the money to actually do what he wants without working. So, so yeah, it started to sink in, but it wasn't until we really started planning out our perfect life that she started realizing. Cause like I said before, she loves what she does. She loves working. So she, so to her, it was like, well, why shouldn't I, you know, buy something that I want because I'll make more money and I always like my job. So and, uh, making more money is not a problem for me. So why not just spend it? Um, but when we started seeing that, look, this could actually give us, you know, six months for you of not working at all, spending more time with friends and family than we do now, seeing more places than we see now, while still allowing to be an optometrist, then it, it really sunk in. And, and yeah, now she's just totally behind this, the idea. Um, her, her spending has completely changed. Um, she wasn't like going crazy before, but she's definitely more, uh, conscious of what she's spending her money on and when. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been, that's, that's the, one of the biggest benefits of actually starting to write about this stuff was that, yeah, I think it really got her on board and now we're, now we're in this together, which is great. Um, yeah. And it's, it's neat that you can share that story because a lot of times when people talk about, uh, financial planning and uh, they see many people see frugality and saving and investing as a sacrifice and they see it as a sacrifice of something that they want and uh, I thought I enjoyed that where next we're gonna go to your your triple value of income um, article because I thought that was a good way to talk about it but I'll, I'll set you up for it you, you know I, I think the people who are many people who are frugal and many people who are pursuing strategies like you are don't view it as sacrifice but they view it more as a way for them to get what they really want. You're absolutely right. It's not a sacrifice. Um, and actually the more and more that I cut back, like I started as frugal, but now with the goal so close in sight, like I'm still dialing more and more back. And as I do, I'm, I'm, I'm getting happier and happier and I feel freer and, you know, less stress, less worries. And it, and it's got to the point where I'm thinking just, rather than keep whittling down to, to reach the, you know, the, the sweet spot, I, at this point, I may be better just giving up everything and then only picking up the things that I really miss. Um, and that may be, that may be more efficient to get to the sweet spot that way. Cause yeah, it's just, it really, it's, it's not hard. It, it, 
it, with such an amazing goal uh, and the finish line so close, it just, yeah, it's so easy not to go out and spend a bunch of money on stuff that's not important to me. Um, and, and you mentioned the triple value of income article. That's, uh, that's actually where it all started pretty much. Because, um, uh, yeah, my mom, I was speaking to her one day and we, I don't know, something came up and I said I wasn't going to spend any money on it or something. She's like, why don't you just go out and buy something to make yourself happy? And I thought a lot about it and I'm like, you know, it, it, that would not make me happy. Um, and I, I wanted to figure out a way to explain it. And so I started thinking and I'm like, yeah, it, you know, if I spend the dollar, then it's gone. And I have this thing that, you know, I probably am not going to be that into in a few weeks. And it's like, or if I keep the dollar, that dollar is going to actually be worth X amount when I actually spend it, depending on if I put it into a retirement account or if I put it into, you know, a normal investment account. Um, so yeah, I wrote the, the triple value of income post to show that, you know, let's, if I forget the numbers I use, but say you make a hundred thousand a year, that hundred thousand is actually only worth 80,000 to you because you have to pay, you know, 20,000 in tax. But if you instead, you know, funnel a lot of that into tax advantage accounts, then you're getting the full value of your dollar plus all of the interest um, that you would accrue while it's in those accounts. Um, and uh, yeah, it seemed like a really good way to explain uh, why I don't feel like I need to spend money because I'm, I'm just delaying my gratification for more gratification later um, for, the, for those same dollars. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no, there's no right or wrong here, uh, but I like the fact I have a good friend of mine who's who's a little bit older, and it's it's interesting with your hundred thousand um, dollar example. Um, this good friend of mine, he's he's older, he's he's quite wealthy. Um, most people would consider him to be quite wealthy, but he has a a boating habit. And he really enjoys, uh, I live down here in Florida, he lives in Florida as well, he really enjoys large expensive boats. So he has a boating habit that costs him um, in excess of six figures a year. So it's a nice boat and he enjoys it. So <laughs> with this in excess of six figures a year, he actually continues to work part time so that he can support that boating habit. <laughs> and to me, like the reason I'm bringing this up is because just to hammer home for the you know 83rd time, either one of these is fine. So at this stage in in, in your life, at 30 years old, the hundred thousand dollars for you is to get the triple value and to build it up into future because that's more valuable. But for my friend who's in his his late 60s, for him the hundred thousand dollars is far more better served, and he gets far more value out of it by spending it. You know allowing him to enjoy a luxurious lifestyle on the water. Um, so, but, but you got to do it in an intelligent way. And at a younger age, I think most folks, it's so valuable to understand the math between what you've laid out and understand how by working that math at 30, it puts you in a position at 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 where you're able to, you know, you're able to enjoy the, the utility of that for a much enhanced lifestyle. Absolutely, and yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, and yeah, your 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 friend with the boat. I that's something I've been thinking about as well recently. That I thought it would make an interesting article. Is I wonder, you know, you said so. He, I assume he owns his own boat. Yes, and he still spends a hundred k a year. Correct. Yeah, that's not the acquisition cost. That's right. The, that's the running cost per year. Right. Yeah. So 
like I, I don't know anything about renting boats, but I, I, I imagine you could probably rent a pretty amazing boat for 100k a year. Not not obviously for the entire year, but whenever you wanted to use it, um, and and not have to deal with all the other garbage of keeping it and all of that stuff. And I, I imagine you could probably do it for less than 100k, but maybe you know obviously you wouldn't be able to just you know think oh I'm gonna go on my boat right now and then go on it. So there's obviously trade offs, but yeah, I just a lot of a lot of people's very expensive hobbies and things like timeshares and things like that where you're only using it a bit um or like RVs and things like that it's like i wonder if they've thought about renting before just going ahead and buying and did the numbers as far as you could probably rent some pretty cool things um and then not get sick of them <laughs> yeah you're gonna love my um, smart smart person's guide to spending money show because here here would be like a couple different ways that it could do it. I'm not a boating person, so I'm with you as far as I would rather usually rather rent stuff like that mm -hmm. um, because I uh, would enjoy it. Now it's 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 challenging to hit the boat again. I'm I'm down here in South Florida. We're talking about you know a 45 foot type of of, of sport fishing boat. Um, the, to charter one of those, you can charter it, and you can go out and you can charter it for the weekend. You can charter it, um, and and you can do it, and you can have a lot of fun on that. But you can also flip it around, and for the right situation, you know, somebody with a boat like that, if somebody has a business, um, that boat can be an a, a, an extension of their business, something that they use to entertain clients, and something that they can use to to entertain um, customers and 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 clients. Uh, it could also be something where it's a business in and of itself. So you can buy the boat if you have the cash to buy the boat, and you can turn around and you can charter it out yourself. Well, because you're you're chartering it out yourself, number one is you can turn it from an expense into potentially an income, uh, or you can use it as a how do I put this appropriately. <laughs> you can use it as a a business which is designed to be profitable but allows most of you some of your expenses to be to be absorbed by the business side of the tax code uh, at some point in the future I'm going to I'm going to do a detailed show on on tax planning but one of the most valuable things for people to do who are interested in luxuries is if you have a luxury that you enjoy and this is something that's important to you whether it's big boats or racing cars or something like that one of the most beneficial things you can do is you can say how can I take my luxury and how can I turn it into a business so if I enjoy operating a boat it's very possible that I may enjoy operating the boat and being out on the water just as much if I have five paying clients on board with me versus me just simply being out there with um, with just myself or with you know three or four of my buddies and by taking something like that and turning it from an expense over into a business and by running it in a business-like manner following the tax rules very carefully, keeping good records, um, you can take and you can legitimately turn the expense into over on, move it over onto a business return where you have basically a, just like you would enjoy, instead of spending your money in a taxable world, you can take that, that, that expenditure which would cost you 80 cents, excuse me, which would cost you 100 cents if you were doing it in a taxable world to turn around and, and turn that expenditure into an 80 cent expenditure in the, in the, uh, in the business world. Um, and there's a lot that you can do with it. And if you keep good records, you can use your business assets and you can use them for both on the business side, but you can also get the personal enjoyment out of them as well. Um, that's a great yeah I'm gonna I'm definitely excited to listen to your uh, smart spending money podcast because yeah that that's 
an excellent strategy and um that's an awesome way to yeah have an expensive hobby yeah and and it's there the key is knowing what the rules are and knowing what you want i personally have zero interest in ever pursuing that course of action because i don't enjoy boating that much but for somebody who that's important to them and they want to do it, look for a way to do it intelligently and look for a way to stack these functions on, uh, on top where instead, of, in, where instead of having something be a large expense, can you make it into, um, you know, can you make it into an income stream? Uh, so there's lots of, of, of things that can do, that, that, there's lots of ways that people can do that uh, and do it very intelligently. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we plan to do. Uh, travel is is our biggest passion. Uh, definitely, we we don't have many hobbies, but we love to go and see new places and experience new things. So, travel was probably my biggest expense of my twenties. Um, but yeah, we're we're flipping that around, and we're going to use it to come out further ahead than if we didn't travel. Because, like I said, we're gonna we're gonna go and spend long, uh, like three months plus at these different places that we've always wanted to go and see. Um, but we're going to live like locals, so we're going to be able to get apartments rather than hotels. And the the flight cost will be minimal, um, not only because I've got quite good at travel hacking, but just because, you know, it's one flight over three to six months rather than most people take one flight over one or two weeks for their vacations, and that obviously jacks up the price of the trip. Um, and plus, there's just tons of cheap but very interesting places to live in the world that we're going to end up spending less money day to day living there than we would living in the states or in Scotland. So, so yeah, we're uh, we're trying to turn our biggest passion not into a business, but use it in a way that it will actually help us financially as well. Absolutely. So let me go to your article there on travel hacking because this was a great article. Um, you, the trip that you recently did is you recently took a trip and you flew from Boston to Ireland and used some strategies. And I think the strategies would be a little too detailed for the air. But, um, but in the article, you flew from Boston to Dublin and then from Dublin to Glasgow. And you stayed, over, you stayed a couple nights in a five-star London hotel. And your total out-of-pocket cost was how much? Uh, less than 150 each for all of that, <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been purchased at retail would have been about 2,000 bucks each, something like that. Uh, let's see, that would have been uh, it would have been about oh, it would have been over a grand each, definitely. Um, a Boston to Dublin flight usually, if you're lucky, you can get it maybe for seven, eight hundred. At the time when I booked it, um, I you know I, I record everything I do uh, just to see how much money I'm actually saving. So at the time, I think. Two of those tickets would have cost $16.92.38. Um, um, so we ended up saving $14.50 by using miles. Um, uh, so yeah, that would have been you know over $1,600 just for the flights from Boston to Dublin because it was summertime. It's you know America to Europe. That's not a cheap <laughs> cheap trip. Um, I then yeah, and then from Dublin. We went to Glasgow because that's where my wife's family is. Um, but my sister was studying abroad in London at the time, so we wanted to stop in London. So yeah, uh, a one-way ticket from Dublin to London, then London to Glasgow. That would have uh, been, you know, over two hundred bucks each, or close to two hundred bucks each, I think. Um, and then yeah, two nights in a five-star hotel right in Leicester Square. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. Um, 
that the actual cost of the room was 974 for two nights um, but we uh, didn't pay anything we used miles I'm trying to see here oh yeah I, I wrote on the post that we saved 240 because there's no way we would have spent 974 <laughs> to stay in a five-star hotel have we been paying but yeah the actual the actual cost of that room for two nights on that weekend that we were there was 974 so um, so yeah so the only thing we did pay was tax on the flights um, and absolutely nothing on the hotel so yeah it was a uh, less than 150 each and uh, it was an amazing trip and we you know it was cheap once we got there obviously because we were just staying with my wife's family and um, yeah it was amazing so so yeah travel hacking is is one of those hobbies that you mentioned earlier that um, you know saves you money but uh, it can be a hobby it's actually a lot of fun and uh, uh, there's there's lots to it and could keep you occupied for a while and it and there's nothing, there's nothing better than waking up in a five-star hotel and seeing all the people around you and thinking that they spent a fortune and you didn't spend a penny. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this article, I mean, the, the travel hacking using the credit cards and the miles and the points is something that it's a topic that fascinates me. Um, I am I am not actively doing it, um, but it fascinates me. I give you a book that uh, that I just finished uh, that you may I don't know if you read or not, um, but it, but the artic, the author of that book goes through some of his deals and how he did them. Uh, the book is called Get More Spend Less, and the author I think his name is Brad Wilson. He he writes at bradsdeals.com. Have you heard of, Have you heard of that book? No, I've not. Uh, it sounds interesting though. Check it out. I think you would enjoy it. I think uh, I think you would enjoy it because it's he goes through some of his deals and his deals are are like yours, uh, incredible. And uh, he goes through some of his. He's pretty hardcore about it, very extreme. And um, you'll love his you'll love his story. And that's also I'll do a um, uh, a review on that book at some point here. But also just a recommendation for anybody listening that wants to to read a good book that. That you, on your on your site you give some good resources to the Flyer Talk forums and to some some blogs that kind of teach about this, but it's definitely a good way to uh, to exploit the system a little bit right now. Oh, it's great, and and yeah, it's it's going to be very important to us because, like I said, once we get to these really cool places, it's going to be cheaper living there. But getting there could be expensive. Um, but using these travel hacking techniques, and currently I'm just building up my balances big time in preparation for, you know, all the travel that I plan to do in the next, you know, whatever decade or so. Um, but yeah, using those to make the travel between these interesting places very cheap is, is just gonna, you know, make the benefit of travel even greater for us, um, financially. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of great resources out there and it is very addictive. Um, and it's very important to know how to to use your miles, um, just as much as it's important to know how to get the miles that you need. Um, I think using them is even more important because, because even though I flew from Boston to Dublin for such a little bit of money and not a lot of miles, um, the, the way I did it is very unknown. Um, the way I used the miles in the way that I did. So, you know, I spent less than half the amount of miles that normal people do when they try to book a America to Europe flight and I paid probably a third or a fourth of the taxes that some people have to pay um, and so yeah it's just uh, following some good blogs and checking out Flyer Talk and 
uh, reading about it and you can really just extract some incredible amounts of value out of these things so and I also want to point out how these functions stack like how this is is a part of uh, the strategy many people um, discount flying on points because of blackout dates because of when they can fly many people discount um, travel but if one is financially independent and one has flexibility over their schedule then number one you can fly either at the cheapest time so you can take those Wednesday flights or the Saturday afternoon flights that are just simply inexpensive you can fly at the seasons when a lot of people can't can't fly so so you can avoid the summer season when everyone's out of school but you can go on the shoulder season between the the the, the high season and the low season and you can get really really great values or you can pursue some of the, you know, you can take the award tickets on the va on the dates that they're available. Um, and so you can be flexible on that and you can afford to slow down. So like you said, one of the major expenses of traveling, when most people think about traveling, they think about, well, I've got this, this two-week vacation that I have to take. And um, you call it slow travel. But if you have this two-week vacation, and let's say you're going to take a two-week vacation to Europe. Well, let's, let's say you pay, pay retail and you got a thousand bucks each for a plane ticket. And then because you're there for two weeks, you have to do this, you know, you have to pack everything in every single day. You've got to have rental cars while you're there. You've got to stay in hotels while you're there. You can't take a, a one-month apartment um, rental instead of staying in a hotel. You can't slow down enough to use public transportation instead of having your own car. Because of the time pressure of, of, of being fixed on this, you know, work 50 weeks a year schedule, you wind up spending you know, I don't know, seven, eight thousand dollars on a on a two week vacation to Europe, where if you are financially independent and you can slow down, you can take that exact same amount of money and stretch it out over a couple of months uh, by just because of your flexibility. So the functions stack on top of each other. Oh, absolutely, and yeah, um, yeah, you're not cooking for yourself. You're not doing. You're not doing any. You're just you know spending money just as fast as you can, pretty much just to have a good time, and you will have a good time. But as you said, like seven or eight grand, that's that could easily sustain somebody for an amazing year in you know Central America or Southeast Asia or South America. Um, that could that could be a whole year of uh, you know learning Spanish and you know learning how to cook and go into the local markets and things that make travel really special um, that just don't cost a lot of money to do. And yeah, you could take. Uh, I, I know I could. I know I could live for a year on some of the budgets people have on uh, their one-week, two-week vacations here in the States. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, this is unique. I think this is a, a U.S. American concept that, that in our culture is not so well understood. When I was in college, I lived in Costa Rica, and I did a uh, research project with the business school that I was studying at. I did a research project for a Costa Rican ecotourism company, and we prepared a, a report on uh, American tourists, British tourists, and German tourists. And it's very clear when you look at it that as Americans, we, we come to, we would go to Costa Rica for a one-week vacation and we would want everything carefully programmed in that one week, <laughs> in that one week. So every single day from morning to night, there are activities and we don't have a lot of time. So we're willing to spend a significant amount of money um, on, those, on those trips. So, and we would want everything planned out in advance of the trip. So when we go up, we know when we show up, we know what our itinerary is, every moment of every day is scheduled and and we've got it all kind of planned out. The British tourists would come, they would want their itinerary planned out, but they would usually come for about a month instead of a week. Uh, so they would they would stretch the time out longer and they wouldn't want 
everything planned out every day. They would want to make sure that they had some downtime um, to to figure it out. And I'm, I'm using a generalizations to, to make my point, but these are pretty accurate. The German tourists would show up at the airport without a single plan, without a single booking, but they would be there for two months. And they would get to the country, they would get to Costa Rica, then they, once they were there, they would figure out what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, and they would spend half the money that the Americans spent in a week, you know, mm-hmm. over a two-month vacation while they were there. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> it's a dramatic cultural difference between the, uh, between the cultures. But yeah, the, it's the adventure and the not knowing and the uncertainty that makes travel so rewarding when you look back on it. Like, uh, yeah, my wife and I lived in China for three months and obviously didn't learn too much Mandarin in that time. And But we would just hop on a local bus, try to find our way to some very remote, weird, uh, you know, small little village in in China. And it would be, you know, we wouldn't know exactly when the bus was coming back, if it was coming back. And um yeah, it's just fun. It's the adventure. That's what makes it. If you wanna, yeah, if you wanna have just normal life, um, eating the same things you eat and doing the same things you do at home, then save a lot of money and just go go uh, go to the next town over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's the end of the first part of the Radical Personal Finance Podcast interview with me, the Mad Scientist. Um, in part two, we dive into some really interesting strategies for achieving financial independence as quickly as possible. So if you enjoyed part one, I really think you're going to enjoy part two as well. Um, since this isn't really my podcast, I don't feel right signing off with a computerized equation like I normally do. So this time I'll just say thanks for listening and I'll see you in part two.